I'm sure we're all familiar with the famous Army re- recruiting poster from World War I. You, you know the one, that, that picture of Uncle Sam very sternly looking at you, pointing at you, saying, I want you. The message was clear, and it, it really cemented the, the Army's reputation. The Army didn't care who you were. Well, they wanted you to be male at that point, but, but amongst the men out there, they didn't care who you were. You could be aimless, shiftless, ne'er-do-well. They would take you, they wanted you, and they would form you. They would, they would turn you from whatever you were into a man, ready to fight for his country. I, I, I'm sure, even though the recruiting poster has changed, uh, I, I'm sure that there may be people sitting in this room today or watching on the live stream who enlisted or at least thought about enlisting in order to get their life back on track. They, they weren't pleased with who they had become, and they thought maybe the army or the Marines or, you know, whatever, would be able to help shape them more into who they wanted to be. You know, it's not just the army that has that effect on people. From the Boy Scouts to the Peace Corps, from the local union to the university, institutions, especially here in America, have always played an important role in shaping and molding the character of their members. But not anymore. Rather than shaping us, institutions these days are more likely viewed as a platform a platform for my self-expression. There are all sorts of examples I could point to. But I don't think, and I could quote you some studies on this. I could even point you to a very important book by Yuval Levin, but I won't do any of those things. I will instead point you to the evolution of the Army's recruiting slogans. World War I through World War II, I want you. We've already talked about that. But once the national draft is instituted, it stays in place through Korea and Vietnam, it all of a sudden becomes choice, not chance, appealing to your desire to be the master of your own fate. But then it becomes be all you can be. That's what I grew up with in the 1980s. Be all that you can be. Join the army. Uh, But that then became army of one in the 2000s. Of course, that makes no sense, does it? Because, of course, an army can't just be one individual. Army of one. And so, what is it now? What's the latest army recruiting uh, slogan? What's your warrior? That's the slogan. What's your warrior? Like every institution that has survived and is thriving in the modern world, the army presents itself no longer as an institution here to shape you, but an institution that's simply here to help you become your authentic self, whatever warrior you happen to want to be. 
And the church is not immune. I wonder why you're here this morning or why you're watching on the live stream. My guess is that many of us are here, at least in part, because we think Christianity and the church will help us become better versions of ourselves. Maybe, particularly we're here at church, because we understand that to mean being a more spiritual version of ourselves. And the church is a lot less dangerous than the army in helping me become all I want to be. What if, however, being all you can be actually isn't about you? What, what if being spiritual isn't about you? That's the question that we've come to as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians. United we stand. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1018, 1018. I have no idea what page it is on your personal Bible or in your app that you just opened. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to start just by reading the first three verses of that chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts... Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let me stop there. Just by way of introduction, kind of catch you up a little bit. In chapter 12, right here at the beginning, Paul finally addresses what it means to be spiritual. Uh, When I first raised this way, way back in in chapter 3, one of the critiques I heard back from my sermon is, you didn't define what it means to be spiritual. I was like, yeah, I know. It's because Paul hasn't defined it yet. Well, we're finally there. We're finally there. Now, many of your translations, and the one I just read, are going to say there in verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. But I bet you have a footnote in your Bible. I know mine does. And if you look down at the footnote there, it'll say, or spiritual things, or spiritual people. Now, why, why that footnote? Well, it's because the, the particular word that's being used here could be translated different ways. It could be translated about things, about spiritual things, And therefore, some people think, well, he's talking about gifts in chapter 12, so it must be spiritual gifts that he's referring to. Or it could be translated spiritual people. Now, what's really interesting about this is it's the exact same word, right down to the last letter of the word he used back in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. Now here in chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual, same word, spiritual people, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware. Paul has been talking about what it means to be spiritual, really from practically the very beginning of the letter. And all along he's been refuting 
their wrong ideas. It's not about being aligned with your favorite preacher. It is not about your superior tolerance and attitudes towards sin. It is not about what you give up, whether that's sex or marriage or food. Now he just says it. He just out and finally tells us, you used to be pagans, he says. People led astray by idols. You were not spiritual people. You know that. You used to be pagans. But now they are spiritual people, or at least they should be. And the criteria for spirituality that Paul lays out here is very clear. It is your relationship to Jesus, as evidenced in both your words and in your life. He says there in in verse uh, verse 3, no one who's truly spiritual can say Jesus is cursed because the Spirit of God, who's the one who makes us spiritual, would never lead you to say that. And, And by the same token, it's only by the Holy Spirit that anyone could confess that Jesus is Lord because this is what the Spirit does. Now, obviously, he's not talking about just saying the words, because I just said the words. I had to say the words because I was reading the words. No, he's talking about more than just like a magical use of words. No, he's talking about your life. No one can live in such a way. No one could confess with their lips and their life that Jesus is cursed and, and be spiritual, because the Spirit doesn't do that. And no one could actually confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, unites us to Christ. And when he does, he completely changes us. He changes our our, our attitude towards Christ. He, He leads us to live lives that are submitted to Christ. Paul is giving us a description here of what it means to be spiritual. It's to be characterized by the work of the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? What is the work of the Spirit? The the Spirit always leads us to a right estimation of who Jesus is and a proper submission to Christ as Lord. People talk about spirituality a lot, especially in a place like Portland. Spirituality is not being open to the universe. Spirituality is not all about the the possibility of miracles. It's not New Age mysticism or sensitivity to the supernatural. Spirituality is not being a meditative person or a peace lover. And spirituality, at the end of the day, has nothing to do with religion. No matter how ethical, no no matter how prominent that religion has been in world history or in a particular culture. Paul is very clear here. Spirituality, true spirituality, is the result of the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. That work that happens in a person's life 
a work that always relates them to Jesus as Lord. Friends, the good news of Christianity, the the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus of Nazareth, a man well-known in history, a person who actually existed, because we know from all sorts of historical sources, not just the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, God in the flesh. This is the good news of Christianity. Now listen, Jesus is highly respected by lots of people for his amazing ethical teaching, for his extraordinary example of love. But if that's all you think Jesus is, then you have misunderstood Jesus. Because the scriptures declare that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means he is the sovereign king of the universe. He is your creator who has a claim on your life. And he demonstrated this in his life by his command over nature, by his ability to heal disease simply by speaking a word, by his ability to cast out demons, even to raise the dead. But the height of his lordship was his authority to forgive sins and reconcile people to God. Because see, this is really what it means to be Lord. When God revealed himself to the Old Testament people in Moses' day as Lord, what he meant is more than just, yeah, I'm the God who created everything and has power over everything. No, I'm I'm Lord. I'm, I'm Yahweh. I'm Jehovah who's coming into relationship with you, who, who loves you and is rescuing you. And that gets pictured for us in the Exodus, but it gets accomplished by Jesus Christ so that we confess he is Lord. He didn't just say this. He didn't just claim it. He actually had the audacity to offer himself as a substitute for us. He claimed to die on the cross as as a sacrifice for us, taking our punishment for us, suffering what we deserved in his own person. And then he proved his claim by getting up from the dead. Now he sits at the right hand of God to all who repent. That is to turn away from declaring themselves God, being Lord of their own lives, and instead turn to him, trusting in him. To all of these, he pours out his spirit on us. He makes us new. He he makes us spiritual people who not only are able to, but want to confess that Jesus is Lord because Jesus loved me dying on the cross. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Christianity. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he has a claim on your life. Oh, but but don't think of him as like the principal up in the sky that you're going to get in trouble with. No, he's the one who died for you because he loves you. And he invites, even he commands you to come into relationship with him and with his Father 
by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in him. Oh, I would love to talk to you more about this. I'm sure if you're here with a friend that brought you, they would love to talk to you about this. There is really nothing more important to deal with than the claim that Jesus is Lord, not just over the universe, but over you, and that he can be your Lord if you will receive him. Spirituality is not what you think it is. It is about your relationship with Jesus. Now, that's true if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian. But I I think spirituality is not what you think it is. I think that's also true if you are a Christian. Because I, I have a feeling that as Christians, most of us in this room, we tend to think that being spiritual is all about something about me. You know, it's about us. It's about our our traits or our habits or our gifts or our state of mind. That's certainly what was going on with the Corinthians. We've seen this throughout as they've tried to define spirituality by, by, by means of things that had to do with them. And and here in the rest of chapter 12, what we get to is one of the main ways that they were defining spirituality. They they defined spirituality, and and this was important to them because they needed to know who was more spiritual than others. They had to know who was better than others. And and, and so they defined that by the spiritual gifts that you had. You see, some gifts are better than others. Some are more important than others. And so if you had the better gift, the more important gift, you were more spiritual. Spiritual. And, of course, they had a lot to talk about. Paul has already told us way back in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, you guys don't lack any spiritual gifts. They had all of them. They were, like, rich in gifts. But Paul says, look, spirituality isn't about the gifts that you have. It's about a life that confesses that Jesus is Lord. And so in the rest of the chapter, he works out what that means. Here's here's his argument. You aren't the point of your gifts. The church is. This is what I want to convince you of by the end of today, particularly for those of you that understand yourselves to be Christians, which is going to be most of you here today. You are not the point of your gifts. The church is. And Paul has two reasons for making this point. First, your gifts are for the good of the church. Your gifts are for the good of the church. And, and I should say, because Jesus is Lord, your gifts are for the good of the church. Let's pick it up in verse 4, where I left off. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these. 
distributing to each person as he wills. All right, so spirituality is not about the gift you have. He's made that point. It's, it's about a, a life that confesses that Jesus is Lord. And, and so, well, what do we, then how are we supposed to think about the gifts that we have? Well, Paul points out that, look, there are lots of gifts, but one spirit. And, and he says there are lots of ministries. Uh, it's, it's actually a word very, very related to the word that we get deacon from. So there, there are lots of diaconates out there. There are lots of ways of service. But that service, he said, is always directed to the same Lord. There are lots of activities, different activities, he says there in verse 6. The, the idea is something that has been empowered in you, an operation or an empowerment. But the empowerment always has the same source. It's God. You see what he's doing? He's undercutting any special pride that you might take in your particular gift. He says every believer has been given a, a manifestation, that is a, 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 something that discloses or that gives evidence of the Spirit in your life. But that manifestation is not for you and it's not about you. The point of your spiritual gift, or, or gifts, I should be really clear here, that the word that he uses there for, for, for manifestation, it doesn't imply that you're only limited to one gift. You, you could have many gifts that are manifesting the evidence of the Spirit in, in your life. But the point, whether you've got one or many, the point is, verse 7, the common good. It's actually a technical term. It's a term that, that comes from, from politics, actually. They would have been very familiar with this term from meetings down at town hall. Uh, it, it means something that is for the public rather than the private benefit or advantage, like, like sidewalks, right? I learned about sidewalks this last year. Uh, you, you know, you got a sidewalk in front of your house. Well, the sidewalk in front of my house, it's my sidewalk. You know how I know that? Because when it breaks, I have to pay to fix it. Yep, I like own that sidewalk. Only not really, like that sidewalk's not really for me. It's for all the people in my neighborhood. And if I don't fix it, the city will come and find me, right? So I have this thing called a sidewalk, but it is not actually for my advantage. It's for your advantage, for your benefit. That's what he's talking about here. Something that you have, but it's actually not for you. It is for the common good. The point of your gifts isn't your advantage, your, your ego, your benefit. It's not to say, hey, look at me. Look at how gifted I am. No, the point of your gifts, whatever they are, is the advantage and benefit of the church the common good. Now, what's interesting then is he, he then kind of like lists off a whole bunch of gifts given by the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 8 and going all the way down through verse 10. Now, there, there are nine of them that he lists here. Let's just be really clear. This is not an exhaustive list. We're going to get to the end of the chapter. He's going to give us a different list. You can go to other letters in the New Testament. You will see yet other lists. Now, this, this is just sort of exemplary. 
It's representative of the kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives. Now, lest you're settling in for a sermon all about spiritual gifts, let me just disappoint you quickly. We are not going to talk about these specific gifts because that's not what Paul's interested in talking about. He's not interested in the what, the particular gifts. Uh, We'll get into it a little bit more when we get to chapter 14. No, at, at this point, he's really interested in the why. Why do we have gifts, not what they are in particular? So all of your questions about speaking in tongues and prophecy, just like save them. We'll we'll get there when we get to chapter 14. His point is that whatever your gift is, it was given by the Spirit as the Spirit wills. His choice, not yours, for the benefit of the body. Now, Now that means, brothers and sisters, that your gift doesn't make you more spiritual or less spiritual than someone else. Because all the gifts come from the same Spirit. What makes you spiritual is your relationship with Jesus. A spiritual person, therefore, understands what his gifts are all about. His gifts are not about him. His gifts are for Christ's body, not himself. So, Christian, are you sitting here this morning guilty of evaluating your spirituality by the wrong measure? Maybe you think you're really spiritual because you have long devotions in the morning. Or because you're known for having deep spiritual insight. Or vast biblical knowledge. You win all the Bible trivia games. And therefore, you're more spiritual. Maybe you think you're more spiritual because of what you're able to do in the church. You're one of the teachers and preachers in the church, or you're able to organize and and administer programs in the church, or you're really gifted at recruiting and training people and getting more people involved, that marks you as more spiritual. Maybe you think you're spiritual because you're just interested in spiritual things, unlike your loser friends who just want to talk about, you know, what was on Netflix last night. Or, Or maybe you think you're spiritual because you, you really enjoy praying, and you're known as a good prayer. Or you're, you're known as a good listener. Brothers and sisters, a lot of those are really good things. Don't want to, like, disparage any of them, but none of them make you spiritual. Spirituality is about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Was was there anyone more gifted than Jesus? No way. I'm sure Jesus had all the spiritual gifts. Did he use those gifts to exalt himself? Did Did he use those gifts to make much of himself? No. He used all of his gifts in order to give himself away for us. He used his gifts, not for his good, for your good, for my good, for our good. Is that the way you think about your gifts? If you understand that your spirituality is fundamentally about your relationship with Jesus and being 
more and more like Jesus, this is the way you will think about your gifts. That it's not about you, but it's about us and how I can use whatever God's given me for the good of those around me. I think this is the problem with spiritual gift tests and inventories. Many of us have been a part of churches in the past where the first thing you do when you join a church is they have you fill out a spiritual gift inventory so you can figure out what your spiritual gifts are. Um, I, I learned this week as I was getting ready for this sermon, they were invented right here in Portland. Spiritual gift tests and inventories were invented, first figured out and published uh, by uh, several of the faculty at Western Seminary. And this was back in the 70s. And the reason for it was they wanted to help believers kind of know how they could help their church. The whole point of the spiritual gift test as it was invented was to help people be better at serving their church. The problem is culture changed on us. And now they are tools that we use to discover our own spiritual potential. And we expect the church to give us a platform to use that gift or gifts, whatever they might be. And if the church won't, well, then I'll just go find a church that will. I have actually been told that to my face in this room. Nothing could be further from the point of spiritual gifts. The church is not for your gifts. Your gifts are for the church. And you really need to understand that distinction. The church is not the place that just happens to exist so you can express yourself spiritually. The church is not the place for you to come and say, here are my gifts, now create a space for me to use them. The church is not for your gifts. It's the other way around. Your gifts, Christian, are for the good of the church. And so I think we just kind of need to ask ourselves different questions when it comes to spiritual gifts. I mean, one question, this is a good question you could ask, is you could, maybe you know, you have some sense of what your gifts are, and you could ask yourself, okay, how can my gifts serve the church? That's a much better question than what are my gifts? How can my gifts serve the church? It begins to orient me towards, well, okay, uh, how can I figure out maybe how to fit in and help what's, what's going on there? An even better question to ask, though, is simply, what does the church need? And how can I give myself to meeting those needs using whatever gifts I might have? I think of uh, Steve Morgan. I'm going to embarrass Steve. I've known Steve for a long time, so I can get away with this. I think of Steve. Steve is very, very gifted at, like, organization and administration. But Steve doesn't show up at church and say, my gifts are administration, so give me a place to administer. No, Steve kind of just looked around and said, oh, 
They're putting on conferences. I bet I could take my gifts of administration and be of help in putting on conferences. And then a little later, he comes along and he realizes, oh, you know what? There's this really kind of complicated child safety uh, program that we have here at the church. I I bet they could use some help administering that program. I'll take my gifts of administration and organization and put it to work, making sure that our child safety system works efficiently and well. I don't think Steve ever woke up one day and thought, you know what I really want to be? I want to be a children's ministry safety administrator. No, I don't, I don't think that's what he thought. I think what he thought was, I want to serve the church. The Lord's gifted me in administration. How can I put that to work? In the needs that they have, not the things I want to do. Or I think, about, I think about some of the folks here in our church that are particularly good at various aspects of hospitality. Like Jen Wickham is really good at making spaces look beautiful. And, and, and Kevin Klein is excellent in like organizing and putting on like meals and snacks and diff- different things. And I, I don't think either of them, you know, ever woke up one day and said, I want a career in church decorating or, or, or church potlucks. I don't think so. I think what they realized is, oh, there's a need to, to, to make people feel welcome and at home. There, there's a need to help people like, be nourished when they're at long church events. I wonder if I could take my gifts and put them to work in that need meeting that need. I think, you know, the best way to figure out what your gifts are is to just start noticing what the needs are and throw yourself in and start serving. The thing about self-administered tests and inventories, all they are is surveys of your own sense of what you're interested in already. So they tend to be very self-confirming. Very few people ever take one of those tests and go, oh my goodness, I had no idea I was gifted at this. (laughs) No, right? Because they're just serving your interests, what you're into. No, I think the best way to figure out what your gifts are is just throw yourself into the life of the church. Because you know what's going to happen? People are going to start telling you what your gifts are. As as you serve, the evidence of the Spirit in your life is going to become evident to all. As as you serve, okay, maybe in some areas you weren't so helpful, but people are going to notice, oh my goodness, in this area you were so helpful. Will you do that again? And all of a sudden, not through a test, but through the body and our engagement with one another, you will begin to realize what your gifts are. Now, I I know there are like all sorts of questions here, like, What's the difference between a gift and a talent? Yeah, I don't know. Paul doesn't care. It's not what he's talking about. He lists some things in that list that are clearly kind of supernatural manifestations and other things that feel more like natural talents. What makes it spiritual is is that you're putting it to work for the body, not for yourself. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
you don't have a spiritual gift. That, that's something that is given to those who've been made alive in Christ. But you do have natural gifts. You, you have talents. Have you ever considered why you have the natural gifts and talents that you do? Is it just a combination of genetics, aptitude, and opportunity? You know, if, if it's true, and it is true, that, that believers, when, when we're made new in Christ, are given spiritual gifts, it is also true that the natural gifts that you have were given to you by your Creator. And He gave them to you, even as Jen was talking about earlier in the reading from the Psalms, He gave those natural talents and gifts to you for His glory not yours. And what that should do, if you, as you begin to grapple with that, that you actually have a creator who created you for himself and gave you aptitudes and gifts and abilities, what, what that should do for you is it should begin to change your understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about sin. We tend to think of sin as merely the breaking of a rule. But it is so much more than that. Sin is also misusing the good things that your Creator has given you. Using the good gifts, the talents, the aptitudes that you have for your own glory rather than for His. So here's the thing. Our situation as human beings, as fallen human beings, is worse than we realize. Because even our good works, even our talents, even our achievements condemn us. They condemn us because we pursued them for our good, not our God's good, our Creator's good. So you may be sitting here thinking of yourself rightly as a pretty good person. You're not a rule breaker. You might even be sitting here and in any sort of objective measure be a better person than me. But what this convinces us of is that even good people need a Savior. Because it is even in our goodness that we stand condemned as we've used our goodness for ourselves and not for Him. You are not the point of your gifts. The Lord Jesus is, and therefore the church is because your gifts were given to you, if you're a believer, for the good of the church. But second, because Jesus is Lord, your gifts are also for the unity of the church, not just the good of the church. Your gifts were given for the unity of the church. Let's pick it up in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, 
it's not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. Those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in other tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts. I will show you an even better way. Paul draws an extended analogy here to make his point that the gifts were given for the unity of the body. Just as the human body mine and yours, all have different parts. All those parts work together to make up one body. And he says, basically, look, it's the same in the church, which metaphorically is the body of Christ. We are many different kinds of people. In Paul's day, there in verse 13, he kind of lays it out. Some some are slaves, some are free, some are Jews, some are Greeks. And in our day, that means all sorts of different things, different sorts of ethnicities, different sorts of socioeconomic class, different educational backgrounds, all sorts of differences. But just as then, so today, we have all, if we're believers, been united into one body through the Holy Spirit, baptized by one Spirit into one body, given one Spirit to drink. I don't think he's talking about two different things there. I think he's using two different images to talk about this one thing, that it's the Spirit that brings us together, uniting us to Christ, and so uniting us to one another in one body. Now, real quick aside, this is why, this is one of the reasons why water baptism and church membership go together. Water baptism and church membership go together because what they picture go together. No one is baptized spiritually by the Spirit and not united to the body of Christ cosmically. And therefore, the picture should look like the thing that it represents. All right, enough on that. If you want to talk to me more about that later, I'm happy to, because that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that one part of the body shouldn't say, well, because I'm not that other part, I don't belong. Because I'm not that other part, I don't belong to the body. It's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Can you imagine your foot saying, well, because I'm not a hand, I'm not going to be part of your body anymore, and you get to hop around because I'm not going to walk. 
No. No, of course not. That's not what your body does. Your body feels very much a part of your body, regardless of which part it is. Paul says it should be the same in the church. So Christian, don't compare yourself to others in the body. No, God has arranged the body just the way he wanted. He knows all the parts that are needed. And he has assigned you the exact part that he wants you to play. Your position and value and and importance to the body isn't determined by which part you are. No, it's determined by the fact that you are a part, right? Now, this is where the analogy breaks down. Your foot actually cannot dismember itself because it's not a hand. But Christians do this to themselves all the time. We distance ourselves from the body. We neglect the body because we think we don't fit in, because we think we don't belong. Christian, if you feel that way, please come and talk to one of your pastors about this or your small group leader. Talk to your friends here in the church about this but do not dismember yourself. That should be as absurd an idea, as ridiculous an idea to you as the idea of your foot doing that because it's not a hand. Here's the thing. As Paul points out in verse 17, it takes all the parts to do what the body does. If the body were just an eye, where would the hearing be? If the body were just an ear, where would the smelling be? God's arranged it all just the way he wants, we're told in verse 18. So that all the functions of the body can happen. Your body, your physical body is not just a smelling machine or a seeing machine or a thinking machine or a reproducing machine. It does all of those things and and more. And therefore, it takes all of you to be you. So it is with us. So it is with the body of Christ, the local church. You, you know, if, if everybody here were a teacher in the church, wh- where, would the, where would the works of compassion and help be? If, if everybody here were an administrator, where would the fun be? Just, just kidding, Mark. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> But seriously, if we were all administrators, like, where would, where would the mercy be? Where would the rejoicing be? See, it's all necessary. It's all necessary. On the other hand, Paul goes on to say, look, no part can say it doesn't need some other part of the body. That's Paul's point beginning there in verse 21. Some parts, some gifts, I think are tempted in particular toward independence, maybe even pride, and so spurn other parts of the body. Paul again points to the analogy of the body, and he says, look, guys, think about your own body. The weaker parts of your body are actually indispensable. Verse 22. And all you you have to do is think for a moment about your body to see the truth of that, right? 
I can't run or balance without my toes. My toes are very weak, right? They're very weak. They actually only do one thing. That one thing, helping me balance and walk and run, they do that really well, but that's it. That's it, pretty limited. Can't pick anything up with them. Can't, despite um, that amazing movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Can't play piano with them. Can't uh, paint with them. I know there are some people that can paint with their toes, but you know, for most of us, toes really are pretty useless. They're pretty weak. They're pretty limited. Oh, but can you imagine how hard life would be without them? Or you think about the fact that we can't reproduce without our private parts. That's a really important thing. Reproduction, having children, that's a big deal. One of the most like, honorable things you can do, and yet what do we do? We, we cover up those parts. Like We hide those parts. We treat them with particular care and concern and respect. I don't cover up my hands, but that doesn't make them more important. It's the same with the various parts of Christ's body. Some parts of the body of Christ need more tender care. They need more respect. Others less. All are necessary. All are indispensable, says Paul. So, Christian, are you perhaps wrongly prideful about the gifts God has given you? Or maybe are you wrongly disparaging of the gifts God has given you? Or or maybe you're wrongly disparaging of other people's gifts. If that's you, you are thinking about your gifts all wrong. You're thinking about your gifts as if they're about you, positively or negatively. I mean, here's the thing, right? God God has given me the gift of of preaching and teaching. That's why I'm standing here right now. But that's nothing to be prideful about. A teacher is absolutely useless unless other people find that teaching helpful. I am not the point of my own gift of teaching. You are. And if at some point you find that my teaching is not helpful anymore, then I should shut up and sit down and find some other way to serve in the church. Why would God organize the body this way? Why not, why not, make, why not make everybody strong? Why, why not make everybody, you know, really good in public? Everybody feels like they're getting the same amount of honor as everybody else. Why, why would God do this? Well, Paul tells us it's for the sake of our unity. It's really what he's emphasizing there in verses 25 and 26. The weaker parts of the body teach all of us something about our own weakness. We we show special honor and concern for the spiritually young, for the wounded, for the tender. That's not condescension. It's... It's the way bodies work, right? The, the, the whole thing works together so that, Paul says, together we hurt with those that hurt. 
and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Think about the last time you stubbed your toe, right? Your whole body felt it. Think about the last time something caused a really big smile to break out on your face. Your whole body felt it. Our unity, through the diversity of our gifts and our ministries, makes it really clear to a watching world that we are not just a bunch of religious individuals. We are the body of Christ. We're united to him. And so once again, just like where we started in verses 1 to 3, he is the point. And because he's the point, his body is the point. Paul brings it home in verse 27. Y'all, that's a better translation, because that's a plural you. Y'all are the body of Christ, and each of you are an individual member of it. And then he gives us another list, only this one's different. And the first four are numbered sequentially. Did you notice that? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing. What's, what's the point of numbering them? He didn't number them the first time. Why is he numbering them this time? Well, I, I think it's likely that Paul views the, the first of those as kind of foundational to the very life and existence of the church, the very first gifts that God gave to the church were the apostles and, and, and then the, the prophets that, that gets the word of God out to, to the people. So there's probably something going on there, but I think there's more. I think Paul knows that the Corinthians think some gifts are more important than others, that you can actually rank them. There is a first best, and then a second best, and then a third best. I think they're having arguments about the proper numbering. We're going to see that later. I think Paul wants to undermine that. He asks a series of questions, having kind of listed them, numbering the first, the first of them. He then asks this series of questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? He runs through all of them. And the answer to every single question is no. No, they're not all apostles. They're not all prophets. They're not all teachers. They don't all do miracles. And I think that changes the way we read verse 31. But desire the greater gifts. You're probably used to reading that as if he's agreeing with them, that there are some gifts that are greater than others, and you should want those. I don't think so. He's not agreeing with their pecking order of spirituality based on what gift you have. He is disgusted by it. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in other tongues, do all interpret, but desire the greater gifts? And I'll show you an even better way. Verse 31 is dripping with sarcasm. but that's the next sermon in this series. The point remains. God gives all manner of gifts. And the purpose of those gifts is not to establish a pecking order in the church or to play to your pride or to give you an opportunity to express yourself. The point of your gifts given by the Spirit, is the good of the body 
and the unity of the body because Christ is the Lord of the body. You aren't the point of your gifts. And you need to kind of hear it that way because that's the way Paul's saying it. He's kind of disgusted with the way we think about our gifts. You are not the point of your gifts. We are. We are. You know, the funny thing about those army recruiting videos and slogans is that every recruit quickly learns that they were lying. The army is not interested in you being all you can be. The army is interested in you becoming what it wants you to be. The army is interested in shaping you and molding you into a member of a cohesive fighting unit, and they are going to deploy you wherever they see fit. It is the one institution in our culture that still functions like an institution. Three times in our passage, Paul says that God has ordered the parts of the body just as he sees fit. Verse 11, verse 18, verse 28. The image he uses is the body, not an army. But I think it's still apt. Jesus is Lord over his body. And the question that leaves us then is kind of asking ourselves, what does my attitude toward my gifts, what what does my use of my gifts reveal about who I think really is Lord? Would you pray with me? Take a moment and think about maybe where a place where your own attitude towards the gifts that God has given you has revealed that you think you are Lord rather than He. And just confess that to Him. For God, we do confess, even as we did earlier in our, in our gathering this morning, that we have so often taken what you have given to us as good gifts, both natural and spiritual, and we've used them as if we are Lord and you are not. We confess that we squander our gifts. We, we confess that we take pride in what we've been given. Lord, we pray that we would rightly estimate who you are. That that we would rightly submit our lives to you to deploy and use as you see fit. And that our joy would not be in what you've given us, but that it would be in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.